0: Well, hello there, writers. My name is Rachel Thompson, host of the Lit Mag Love podcast. I'm a writer, editorial collective member at Room Magazine, and also an online instructor for writers. Lit Mag Love is co-presented by Room Magazine, Canada's oldest feminist literary journal, and We Write, We Light, online courses and more to help you polish and publish your writing. Each episode of Lit Mag Love takes you behind the scenes of literary journals to give you insights on what's going on there. And I talk to writers and editors about their writing practice, delving into what they like in submissions, how journals actually work, and current trends and topics in the literary scene. In this episode of Lit Mag Love, I talk with Carly Baker, one of the editors of Joyland, and also an editor of an upcoming issue of Poetry is Dead. And I need to preface this particular episode because it's the first of a few coming up where I interview writers and editors closely affected by what's been happening in CanLit culture, Canadian literature culture, and specifically with the University of British Columbia firing of a prof and the fallout when literary heavyweight signed a letter calling for due process of the accused. As Carly put it in our interview, last winter was a dark winter in CanLit, and it's basically Canlet's hashtag MeToo moment, but it hasn't played out the way it has in Hollywood at all. In this movement, it has been the less powerful people in Canlet speaking up and demanding true accountability from our community. So on the show notes for this episode, I will link to articles that will provide some background on this, though you don't need to know all the minutiae of the story to listen to the episode. For one, there's unfortunately a really familiar pattern here. And for another, we talk about other things like Carly's enthusiastic interest in heavy metal music, the difference between her first and second book, where she can now look outward, and her activism on Twitter. And we also talk about what makes her hopeful for the future, including the foundation of the UBC Indigenous Reading Group. And as always... The episode is full of behind-the-scenes insights from a literary journal, in this case Joyland, and tips for you on submitting to Lit Mags. So I am delighted to introduce my guest for this episode. Carly Baker is a Cree, Métis, slash Icelandic writer living on unceded Coast Salish territory. She is the Vancouver editor of Joyland and also editing an upcoming issue of Poetry is Dead. Carly's work has appeared in Subterrain, Prism International, joyland and matrix she won the lush triumphant award for short fiction in 2012 and is a two-time journey prize nominee in submissions to her she says she likes bees spawning salmon and apocalyptic romance and tight economical prose with a ton of subtext a sense of humor the darker the better and a deep appreciation for how flawed and confusing humans are So welcome, Carly Baker, to the Litmeg Mag Love podcast. This is such a wild time to be having this conversation about Lit Mags and about Can Lit Mags in particular. Can you tell me about your feeling on all that's happened in Can Lit in the past year or two? If you had to sum it up in just a couple words,
1: man, yeah, a couple words. Oh, geez. Um, thanks for having me, Rachel. As of course, first of all, and um, yeah, I think first off, I'm keenly aware that a lot of people have been hurt. A lot of people have suffered as a result of you know, some predatory men and uh, the people who have been complicit in supporting them. Uh, some misguided women who I'm deeply disappointed in. There's been a lot of racism made bare on social media for anyone to see. I still remember waking up early in the morning um, and getting on Twitter, as I do. I don't know why I don't have uh, better self-care methods than that, but that's what I do, I roll out of bed and check Twitter right away and uh, to to see this uh, conversation about an appropriation prize happening on Twitter, and, and that hurts people. That hurts real human beings. Uh, I'm not happy about this. Maybe I'm crazy, but I am hopeful because of things like the Emerging uh, Indigenous Writers' Prize Prizes, Uh, which exists because of a wildly successful crowdfunding campaign started by Robin Parker. Uh, I'm hopeful because I see a lot of women and some men speaking up about sexual assault, and I'm seeing how the community supports them, even if the system is a lot slower in changing. I don't think that surprises any of us. But uh, I see change. So, although it has been a rough year, uh, I mean, I'll only speak for myself. But I'm going <laughs> to certainly have heard stories that suggest that it's been a rough year for a lot of us. And um, I guess I'm cautiously
0: optimistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do find you, you're sharing a lot of yourself on Twitter, which is so generous. And and I went through that Twitter list a thousand times to prepare for this interview because there's so many gems and and so much that That you're sharing that I, that I turn to to even look at sort of what's happening at the time and what what was it, what does Carly have to say about that? And one recent tweet struck me where you said, "Old guard can lit, please start questioning what you think you know. please embrace the uncomfortable and unsettling feeling of change. It's unavoidable and it's healthy. And as writers it's our job. and I'm wondering how do you manage to share so much of yourself online and keep producing the work that you do? And then what are other ways that you embrace the uncomfortable and unsettling yourself as a writer?
1: Thank you. This is an excellent question. And it's actually one that I've been asking myself a lot as of late. I feel like I'm not even close to doing enough work online when I see writers like Alicia Elliott and Jen fong Lee, Daniel Justice. They're just killing it on Twitter with a sassy and Informative threads, I'm still feeling burnt out and like I don't have time to do the writing that I have to do to, you know, like have food to eat and keep a roof over my head. I've also got a pretty weak constitution for conflict, which uh, pretty much fuels Twitter these days. Uh, There are a lot of people who feel pretty comfortable back channeling me. Terrible stuff whenever I speak out. I'm not alone in this, but I guess I would say that like continuing to speak out even in the face of conflict. Is That's one way that I commit to the unsettling job of writing. I do have to take, I have to take online breaks and I have to trust that the community will contribute any way we can. There's room for for people to take breaks and other people will step up. That's just sort of how a community works. And also, I guess, just keeping in mind that, you know, I don't have to weigh in on everything. (laughs)
0: Like you're saying, it takes away from the writing itself. And I can imagine that must just be so exhausting to feel and and especially if you're getting back channel comments like that that's terrible.
1: Yeah, trolls are really a thing and uh, it's less maybe I feel like it's less for me than it is for other folks and and I'm quick to mute, I don't engage uh, at all. So I'm quick to block, quick to mute. I think more of us that's happening with a lot more of us, but I, I mean I have to keep that in mind when I speak out. It's probably one of the reasons why I'm I am a little less sassy. I try to keep things really even uh, because I think it just a person has to know how much blowback can I endure? And am I going to be able to sleep at night and wake up the next morning and, and go to work? Or can I finish this assignment if uh, I've got that adrenaline in my body that comes from conflict? So I have to be keenly aware of that because I'm just a little a little more wussy than
0: <laughs> some of the folks out there. It's funny because I, I don't find you come across wussy at all on your on <laughs> list. I really admire the ways that you've spoken up and, and the ways that you've articulated ideas around what's going on in Kenlit, and like you said, a lot of hurt people out there. Thank you. And I want to talk about your writing, though, too, because, I mean, that's why we're here, and sort of the unfortunate thing that we have to preface with all this other stuff. But you've said before that your book of short stories, Bad Endings, draws heavily from your own bad decisions. And yet it seems to me that you've made a lot of great decisions in the past few years in terms of your writing career. So what experiences are you drawing from for your writing these days, and and what are you working on?
1: (laughs) Yeah, fortunately, I've uh, I've pulled my stuff together in the last few years. But all that conflict in my past is going to make for great stories. It's made for some, I guess, already, and more to come. I am still writing from life. Uh, my next book is autofiction, so kind of a memoir novel hybrid uh, about a canoe trip I took through the Peel River watershed a few years ago. And the Peel River watershed spans 68,000 square kilometers through the Yukon and Northwest Territories and was, despite a final agreement, which is uh, the name for a treaty in the territories, uh, the government was uh, looking to move in and open a lot of the Peel River watershed up to gas and mining exploitation. So the goal of the trip was this kind of a save the peel documentary because it was under direct threat. But what actually happened on the trip was a lot different than what we expected, which just sounds like an elevator pitch right there, I guess. So one one thing that's definitely changed since Bad Endings is that I've dealt with a lot of the painful stuff I wrote about in the book. There's a lot of navel gazing in that book because I needed to heal some things before I could turn my gaze Outward. I sure I am grateful that folks enjoyed reading it because, you know, I'm, I keep the readers in mind, but a lot of those stories I wrote for me. These days, I'd say I'm a lot more concerned with what's going on in the world and how I can contribute educating people about the environment, uh, issues of Indigenous representation, all that stuff that Jonathan Kay hates, um, my book, it will tell my own story. My book will tell my own story, but it engages with political and social issues a lot more than Bad Endings did. And I'm glad for that. You can only gaze at your own navel for so long. And uh, and if that's what you need to heal, great. But uh, I'm really looking forward to turning my gaze outward.
0: Yeah, that's great to hear. In fact, because I, I see a lot of writers, I think that is what gets people started is having to heal from some things and then if they can move on from that and, and write Facing Outward. That's wonderful. And one way that you're facing outward, I guess, is is I know you're a fan of heavy metal and you're co-editing an issue of Poetry Is Dead on a metal theme. And I'm just wondering how has music, and not music in particular, impacted your writing? And are there any parallels between lit and metal?
1: Yeah, with David James Brock, I'm so thankful to Daniel, Dina, and Ben at Poetry Is Dead for giving me this opportunity. Uh, I'm not sure Music has had much of an impact on my writing, or I don't know if you see a lot of the impact music has on my writing in my writing. I'm one of these, I have a, just an obnoxious habit. I just put the same, when I'm writing, when I'm working, I just put the same song on and I can listen to it for like two, three, four, six hours, just the same song. And I, I do that, I guess, because once I find a song that kind of reflects the emotional state or whatever, the, the state that I'm in in my head, I kind of want to hang on to that for as long as I can. So it's been a tool for me. But I don't know if it's been much of an inspiration. And uh, last winter, last winter was a dark winter in Canlet. And it was a dark winter. I was um, getting used to being a... uh, It was a dark winter in Vancouver, too. It was like one-tenth as uh, intense as what it must be in Montreal every winter. But uh, man, it destroys us here because we're just not used to it. So I was getting used to being a um, grad student. And I really got more deeply into metal, probably than I've been for a few years. And I mean, I consider the genre to be very, I mean, for me, it's my woe is me music, my nobody understands me music, this is brutal. Uh, This is dark. And uh, that allows me to kind of, I think, almost engage in, I would call it feeling sorry for myself, because I tend to beat myself up for, you know, just not being in a good mood or whatever, or being down. But I need times to unabashedly feel that way. And that's sort of what last winter, that's what metal allowed me to do. And being a writer, I think it was years ago that I was a big metal fan. But now that I'm a writer, I just started to read about the genres more and uh, read about black metal, which I listened to a lot last winter, is a really problematic genre. There's a lot of issues among the community, it's not the entire community, with issues of of white supremacy, there's bro culture, there's all kinds of problematic things involved and I hope people will write about that in Poetry is Dead. It's not a celebration of metal necessarily, it's an interrogation and so that gives people the opportunities to write about the problematic aspects. Black metal also in Norway came about as a way of pushing back against the colonization of paganism, by Christianity, and, uh, well, as an Indigenous writer, I was fascinated by that, how the youth at that time wanted to take action against uh, what they felt was the death of their country's original views, um, spiritual views. And uh, so anyways, I could go on and on, but I spent the summer researching and learning about this and even just things like uh, distortion, the use of distorted guitar in metal and uh, how Link Ray was a a Cherokee guitarist who was the first to use distortion in his rock music. And it was banned from the radio because uh, they thought it would incite violence. So just this idea that creating violence Uh, form of violence by distorting a sound wave leads to that response in human beings where uh, people fear that it's going to incite violence inside us. So this is so interesting to me and I could write a ton on it. Right now it seems like I don't have the opportunity to do a lot of writing myself because I'm just involved in a a lot more editing projects and finishing my thesis. So I hope people are going to have fun engaging with this because I think it's actually big, bigger than a lot of uh, what some people might think when they hear metal. Metal, I was never a fan of metal. There's gender fluidity in the hair metal, the poisons and warrants and of that generation. So there's a lot to write about there and I'll be doing it myself as soon as I'm uh, through with the issue.
0: Oh yeah, I'm so sold on this issue. I can't wait to read it now. (laughs) (laughs) I love the way that you've connected. It's the enthusiasm with which you're connecting with the history and all that is just palpable. It's so cool. (laughs) So I want to switch because we're here to talk some lit mag love. So I want to talk a little bit about your experience with lit mags. And I know you talked about the editing projects you're doing. We're going to get to that after the break. But for your own writing, what was the first lit mag you published with? And what did it mean for your writing at the time?
1: Oh man, I'm so lucky, lucky and I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm grateful. Uh, My first submission was to Subterrine for their Lush Triumphant Contest. And it's a story that's in Bad Endings, and it actually won first place. So this was a huge gift. I had just finished my year at the Writer's Studio at SFU, a really great program that was uh, started by Betsy Warland and Wade Compton is, is kind of the head of things there now. And so I just finished. I had basically, we were heading out to go to the end of the year party and I got this message that like, oh my gosh, you won, you won the last triumphant. So we had to go out and buy some sparkling wine to go along with our Paps Blue Ribbon or whatever. So it was huge. And I think what it did was it like it really caused an explosion of writing more confidently for me. I didn't all of a sudden think I was the best writer in the world because I'd won this contest, but it opened up my ability to write and to write with confidence. And I think that a confident voice is so important for a story. And like beyond that, Subterrane is published by Amble Press and they published my book. So it opened things up career-wise for me as well. Brian and Karen have been so... Good to me. Really supportive and um, really kind in the face of all my, my diva de- demands and and uh, all the extra work that happened when the book received some recognition this last year.
0: Your diva demands? <laughs> what, what would that say? <laughs>
1: well, it feels like it. It's just like, you know, I mean, this. I guess just a lot of extra work goes into the promo and stuff yeah. like that there was a photo shoot for Quill & I'm super, super grateful that Quill & would even think to put me on their cover. But uh, man, that was like, Brian stood with me. Brian and Dina Del Buccia stood out in the rain with me for like three and a half hours. Well, a lovely, lovely, talented gal took my photo like 9,000 times or whatever and held the umbrella for me and did that little thing that, you know, kind of made me feel like uh, a rock star, you know, in the face of the reality, which is just standing there and smiling and smiling and smiling and smiling. And I mean, that couldn't have been fun for them. So just accompanying me to these events that I'm like a deer in the headlights at a lot of these big events. So it feels like diva demands, I guess. I guess that's maybe what happens at a publishing company. I don't know because it's my first book, but uh, (laughs) I'm just so grateful that they're willing to hold my hand through this stuff.
0: It's wonderful. You name so many great people and and sort of painting the picture of the community that is required to create a writer too. So I think that's just wonderful. I, like I'm also a graduate of the SFU Writer Studio much earlier on. And I think Betsy really created a wonderful, just the most compassionate and warm environment that I think has led to a lot of great and really generous writers out there in you among them. What have you learned by editing other writers that informs what you're doing in your own writing?
1: I am really a hands-off editor, or I see myself that way. Maybe people would disagree, but I spend a lot of time getting to know their voice and getting familiar with their voice and making sure my suggestions don't interfere with it. I think I I know we'll talk about this later, but I think I gravitate towards, I know I gravitate towards writers with a strong voice. So it's my job to not mess with that, but also try to figure out ways. I guess I just try to point out moments when I'm genuinely confused about something and then ask questions, as far as my own writing, I guess I like I learn more about the craft itself every time I read a story analytically I feel like every writer or, or I mean most writers we it seems like we all know that we need to read to be the best writers we can be. But my experience is that it sure is easy to just get caught up pumping out the writing as much as possible and uh, writing until, you know, you fall into bed or in my case, I want to watch some cartoons or something like that. I just, and, and go to sleep. So reading analytically is really beneficial for me. I probably learned to be more brave because I respect the choices and risks other writers make.
0: It's funny, I really relate to that too. Just editing with room and reading this powerful writing can not help but inspire you and rub off a bit. Yeah, for sure. So I know you're now doing an MFA at UBC and I'm just wondering why you decided to apply there and and what that means for your writing because I know a lot of writers out there listening are faced with that decision whether they should do an MFA or do they need to do an MFA?
1: I'm really glad you asked this. I have a very very pragmatic approach to the MFA. I knew I would benefit from having an academic framework and a community around me for my next book. As I said, I've turned my gaze outwards. I'm interested in politics. I'm interested in social questions. And I just knew that it was going to benefit me to have people around me that could help help me form my ideas, I guess, and in a way that an editor, editors are are angels, but I needed people to help me with the first step, which is to just get the large chunk of writing that has to be edited into something better. I knew I needed an academic framework around me for that. I was really excited to see that the UBC program would let me take courses in the First Nations Indigenous Studies program here at UBC, So people like Daniel Heath Justice and Dave Gertner have been in FNIS have been a huge support for me. Of course, the profs in the creative writing department, Keith Maillard and John Vigna. Keith is my thesis advisor and Dave Gertner from FNIS is uh, an advisor as well. So I just got these people who are willing to support me and I needed that. I also, I mean, I just, I need an MFA to teach. And at UBC, I've been able to TA and just get the hands-on experience working with students, which it is hard work. It's also, I mean, it would just fill my heart some days standing in front of this class. You know, you're kind of terrified uh, in front of them. And, and the first time that you say, like, does anyone have a question? And five hands go up. And it's just like, oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I needed that. It's hard for me to speak. I think I, I write because I don't trust what comes out of my mouth a lot of the time. I'm not sure it's going to make sense. I'm not sure there's going to be a proper through line for people. So I needed that hands-on experience. Um, I don't know. I don't think there's a lot of writers in Canada who get to just write for a living. And I, so, but I thought, well, I need to know first whether teaching is even something that I vibe with before I jump into it. And I got to, to know that, or I'm getting to know that through my time at UBC. I didn't go into the program thinking that I was going to have my hand held or that it was going to magically make me a better writer. I really firmly believe that these programs are only as good as what you bring to them. And I I don't mean to suggest that someone that might have a bad MFA experience wasn't a good enough writer. I don't mean that at all, but I just I wonder if sometimes I talk to a lot of potential can't like a lot of people that are interested in taking the program. And I just feel that my opinion is that's a really important thing to know what you want from the program. And if it's just I want to get this thesis done, I want to have somebody working with me on it, and I want the piece of paper then I think that a person is likely to be fairly satisfied when they get through. But these profs are busy. They got a lot of stuff on their plate. Everything is busy at UBC. UBC has been going through a really challenging time right now, getting over the aftermath of the Stephen Galloway situation. I'm not sure. I don't even like to use his name. But um, people are doing a lot of work there to heal and to get over that situation. So I didn't expect that uh, there'd be a lot of handholding. The profs have been extremely generous to me, but that's its you're, you're there to do the work, to get your paper, and move on. <laughs> that sounds kind of brutal, but uh, that's what I believe.
0: Yeah, the drive to be a writer is something that comes within. It's not going to be created for you by doing an MFA, I guess.
1: I don't think so. And maybe, maybe at some places, maybe some people find that, but UBC, it was very similar structure to the Writer studio. It's, it's workshops and uh, you don't know who's in your workshop, who's going to have some useful information for you, who might say something a a little inappropriate or racially problematic based on your piece. That's as an indigenous writer. And um, that's something that you never know what the response is going to be to something that you've written that is personal. And I guess maybe for all writers, but I just always prefer to just speak my own truth. And so there's a lot of challenges that you face being thrown in with a bunch of people who all have their own lived experience and background, but I'm thrilled with the community that I found at UBC.
0: And part of that community is this Read Indigenous group that you are coordinating. Can you tell us a little bit about how that group impacts your writing life and a little bit more about the group itself?
1: Yeah, the UBC Indigenous Lit Reading Group, we're trying to come up with a catchier name for it than that. That is often the best Time in my week. It came about in the thick of the, I guess you know, like the second wave of the after the UBC accountable letter had been posted, and students just had to all of a sudden deal with. Uh, some students had been a part of the initial problematic behavior, um, I'm trying to use <laughs> diplomatic language here, <laughs> and um, we were in the sort of the second wave where we were interacting with the folks that had been really burned out by the reality of the situation. So to be frank, several of us were in class with a UBC Accountable signatory. And it was really challenging to uh, all of a sudden be faced with a professor who had taken this position that seemed really argumentative. Um, And uh, at the end of class, one day, it was the the, uh, anniversary of Louis Riel's death. And I had some photocopies in my bag of the last speech that he gave before he was executed. And it's, it's just really an excellent piece of rhetoric. So when we finished class, I just sort of said this, this was in a nonfiction class where we had really, this is one of these moments that I'm talking about when a, when a workshop works, you end up with an amazing community and amazing group of friends and and, uh, peers. So I just suggested that like, maybe we should go over to Buchanan, which is one of the writing buildings and uh, just read this together, read out loud. And we did, there was probably about, eight of us the first time, people from all backgrounds, all ages, and we just sat and read together. And when you're done, it's it's seriously, it's like doing yoga together. Everyone just felt so sort of connected and we felt good. It didn't make everything better, but it was like a little chance to connect as humans at a time where uh, everybody was dealing with their own exhaustion and fears about what was to come. So we just, it was like a bonding experience and I realized that like, okay, we just, we've got to do this all the time. So we were pretty informal last year. We'd sort of meet up when we could, whoever could, and eventually actually First Nations Indigenous Studies program got us a room and we would just get together we just read out loud a page at a time we sit in a circle you know we start who wants to start and they read a page and the next person reads a page it's just how we go around we can stop you can stop anytime and ask a question we seem to read a lot of stuff that has a lot of Cree language in it so if anyone wants to stop and we pull out the Cree dictionary and look up the word and talk about its context so it's really very chill and um Useful as far as just, I mean, we're learning, but it's, I just always feel so good after we've gotten together to read out loud. So earlier this year, we were very lucky, Lee Lee Miracle came to the department and uh, she took part in the reading and um, sat in the circle with us and read out loud. And on February 5th, we've got a couple of visiting writers at the school Alicia Elliott and Katharina Vermette is coming as well. And we actually have uh, an Indigenous professor at the school, Joanne Arnott. And they're just going to join us and read with us. So um, I wanted it to be something to help build community. Everybody's always welcome. There's no stupid questions. And uh, I hope it's going to keep going after I'm gone because uh, I think it's, it's useful for students.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a real beacon of light and what have been really difficult days in the creative writing department in particular there at UBC. Yeah, it's
1: it was it's certainly helped me. I'm grateful for the folks that were willing to show up and do it.
0: So we're going to take a short break. And then when we're back from the break, I'm going to ask you a bit more about the specific journals that you're editing with and what you look for in submissions. LitMag Love is co-presented by Room Magazine, Canada's oldest feminist literary journal. Room has published fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, art, interviews, and book reviews for 40 years and can be found at roommagazine.com. If you're on the website, you'll also find the call for submissions. The current call is for an open issue, and then an upcoming issue is on the theme of magic. So if you want to break out your spell books, herbs, top hats, star charts, mystical amulets, talking animals, and arcane wisdom, you can submit to that particular issue. And Meg Love is also presented by my project, We Write, We Light. Whether you want to publish your writing, polish your work in progress, or just get set up with a writing routine you'll stick to, I help you and your words shine. You can find out more at WeWriteWeLight.com. Currently being offered is my course, Polish Your Pros and Palms. And registration for that course only opens a couple times per year. So if you miss it this time, you can also sign up to get on the waitlist for the next time. And that's at WeWriteWeLight.com. So we're back from the break and I'm here talking with Carly Baker about editing now um, the journal. She's an editor with Joyland and she'll be editing that issue on metal for Poetry is Dead. And I want to read what you said about what you're looking for in submissions so that you said you like bees, spawning salmon and apocalyptic romance and tight economical prose with a ton of subtext, a sense of humor the darker the better, and a deep appreciation for how flawed and confusing humans are in your submissions to journals. So what else apart from that <laughs> are you looking for in submissions and what kind of writing do you want to see more of and what would you rather not see again? Yeah,
1: <laughs> a lot of the stories sound a lot like bad endings. So yeah, I am basically just looking to publish work that sounds just like my own over and over and over again. Uh, No, not really. But this is such a tough question for me to answer because I find that I just connect with some pieces and not with others. And that must be infuriating for writers looking to get published to hear, you know, like, hey, just send me whatever and I'll let you know. But I don't think I've figured out what that connection is yet. I'm still working on it. I am still, I've been really lucky to have been given some of the positions that, that I've been given. But I guess that's it is that I just went to work on the process and to try to put into words what I'm looking for. It's just something that I'm not, I'm still working on. And I empathize with writers who are just trying to figure out what, well, what do I, what do we send this woman? What, what is, what does she want? I mean, I look for stories with a deep anxiety, you know, whatever that means to the, to the writer and a willingness to laugh at oneself. I look for stories that give me the feeling that the writer has a lot of heart I love economical language but I've also published very verbose stories because they've hit me they've just hit me with a tsunami of words you know and I've just been swept away so I really apologize to to those who are listening I know that that's frustrating and I empathize submitting is brutal but and I definitely keep that in mind when reading submissions it's tough it's tough out there uh, and I get it I think yeah I don't ever I don't ever want to see a story Another story that exploits the experiences of marginalized peoples for writerly cred. I catch a lot of backlash for this from some writers, but, you know, I don't care. Send that somewhere else. Lee Miracle has a great quote. Uh, I can only paraphrase it, but I understand it to mean something along the lines of, you know, write what you want, but don't expect immunity from critique. Expect to be accountable for your words is what I take from this, and I'm not inclined to give space those stories. But I don't run the world. So there are other places to send this, this material. And uh, you're just going to have to accept my views and go, go somewhere else with those stories. I <laughs> feel pretty strongly about that.
0: <laughs> I think that's totally fair and wonderful and something I as- aspire to do too in, in my editorial work. I think though, um, there is a way maybe for people to get a sense of your is and that's to read your book. And if they connect with your writing As well then they maybe know that okay I'm connecting with her words then maybe she's gonna connect with mine.
1: Yeah that's what I did um, looking for submissions there's a reason why I sent my first story to Joyland there was I wish I knew the the writer's name but there was an excellent story that had won the Lush Triumphant the year before called Monster Hospital and oh it was just so dark without being heavy-handed and slow-moving and it was just dreamlike and I thought well this is uh, i mean i was very emerging at that i'm still emerging but i was extremely emerging at that point quote unquote but i thought well this this is kind of how i write and this is definitely how i would love to write someday so my my goal then is to not recreate that story but is to to take from those sensibilities what i found to be so so enjoyable and so intoxicating and i wrote a story and and that's why I sent it to the Subterrain. I didn't. I didn't send it to journals that Subterrain likes gritty stuff, and you know they're willing to push the boundaries a little bit and to get into the darker side of humanity. So for me, when I was really just just looking for that magical publication connection, that's what I did. I read a lot first, and and then I submitted.
0: I think that's awesome advice. And I was going to ask you a bit about developmental suggestions you might make, but you said that when you get uh, work that you don't usually make big suggestions. Either it clicks with you and you publish it almost as is unless you're confused about parts and then you ask them to fix that. Is there anything anything more that people can expect when their work is accepted for you at Joyland?
1: Yeah, it's basically... Um, oh, I should mention too that I'm on a break from Joyland, Vancouver, for the time being. So please send your submissions, but you'll be working with someone else should your work be accepted. I'm not sure exactly who, but I know that Catherine Mockler, who is a senior editor at Joyland, she published one of my stories before I started working there as an editor, is a dream to work with. But for me, uh, a person could ex- yeah expect a lot of questions. Uh, a bunch of little suggestions with question marks and sort of the reassurance that the writer has the agency to make the calls on my edits, that everything is a conversation. And uh, I can say that I, I, I don't want to speak for Catherine, but my experience working with Catherine was the same. Um, She's, uh, she's a punctuation master. I'm not that, that good. I have to run everything through. I have to, that's what takes me the most time with editing actually is the grammar and punctuation because I'm more of a substantive editor, but not with Joyland. Um, Yeah. If I vibe with the story, then there's going to be some questions and then conversations over what the original intention of the writer was and how we can make that work in the story that's, that's pretty much how it's worked so far.
0: Lovely. Okay. You said again on Twitter that you feel like you've seen or been on a million panels about why publishing diverse voices is important, but you haven't been part of many conversations about what the actual mechanics on this will look at. Like, what are the conversations, I guess, that you have been part of in the journals that you edit and what other conversations do we need to be having?
1: Yeah, um, this is not something we've talked a lot about at Joyland because, as editors at Joyland, we have complete sovereignty over our choices um, and and the work. So Brian and Emily are extremely supportive. But since there's less steps for a story to go through at Joyland until it hits the website. I'm doing the reading. Uh, there's also a couple of amazing submissions editors at, uh, at Joyland now, but when I'm, when I'm active with Joyland, uh, I'm reading all the submissions. So, and I, I, I'm aware that uh, if a submission comes in and it's got some cultural material that I'm not familiar with, then that's my job as an editor to go seek someone out hopefully someone who isn't also fielding a million questions of this sort, uh, see if I can get some help from someone to discuss the story with me and go from there. But uh, then there's less steps for a story, a Joyland story to go through until it hits the website. But the mechanics I was talking about in this tweet, so they're they're reduced with Joyland, but my buddy Jessica Johns actually brought this to my attention and got me thinking about it in the context of literary journals where um, there are are volunteer-first readers who, again, may not have the cultural background to give every piece that's coming in its due, or judges um, who might get a really diverse shortlist um, and feel like they don't have the tools to judge certain stories. I feel like in the old days, these stories would just slip through the cracks. It just wouldn't, wouldn't win, wouldn't be recognized. But that's not good enough anymore. It was never That was never good enough, but it's just that's just not going to stand anymore. We need to support the first readers and the editors and anyone along the chain who needs more context to understand a story. Goes without saying, but I'll say it anyways, we need more writers uh, from marginalized communities working as editors and publishers and judges. Uh, but as it is happening, as it happens, I feel like we need to support those already holding those positions. And it's it's support that's required, not critique. A lot, m- Most first readers are volunteer. They're doing a crazy amount of work and I'm super grateful for them, but they deserve the support required that if a story comes in, I guess just it, it this sounds a little abstract, a brief example, um, I wrote an essay that uh, has a chunk of self-identification, who I am, where I'm from, what my background is as a Métis uh, Icelandic person, and um, some positionality, discussion discussion of my positionality, which is, it's kind of an academic thing that is used even, I think, in um, literary essays, where you just, you say, "This, this is what I know. And so I'm not an expert on this subject. You're getting my, you're getting my views on this subject. And it's very important to do in Indigenous communities, because it's important to, to speak your truth. And we don't need to be experts, what we're talking about, we're, we're engaging with the audience to present our views on what we're talking about. But uh, this essay, when, when it rolled through the first bit of feedback at school, um, some really well intentioned feedback was, well, this is a little bit dry. I think you could cut this because this is a little bit dry. And these people were right. It is dry, but it's a necessary part of that essay for me culturally, for who I am. And also as someone who was raised outside of the community, it's important to recognize that so that people know that I'm not some kind of uh, uh, all-knowing spokesperson for what it means to be Métis. That needs to be a part of that essay. And I imagine at that point, you know, a first reader coming across an essay and being like, well, oh, this, is, this is dry. People need to help. They need support to know that there are cultural differences in the way writers write. And uh, we want to, Jess brought this to me with just the idea that um, you can open it up, you can say we want diverse voices, but then these stories have to go through several channels to get to publication and we need more
0: education on that front. Yeah, I love what you said about context, like just understanding the context. If you don't know the protocols of how to write from that perspective, then get some context and support people for getting that context. That's great. Yeah, for sure. Then my last question is um, just to ask about a recent piece that you chose for publication and why you chose that piece.
1: Sure, yeah. I mean, as I said, I've been on hiatus from Joyline for a few months, but um, one piece I'd love to talk about a little bit is Francine Cunningham's Complex 2675. And when that story came in, a couple things happened. I really enjoyed the experience of reading it, it sort of reminded me of like a Melrose Place meets uh, Twin Peaks. There were a lot of explosive relationships and um, a lot of drama, but this sort of feeling of foreboding uh, as well. And it's all these characters who live in the same building and this kind of what what could happen if you could look through that door and see how this person is living and see how that person is living. And I just, I thought it was, was so great, obviously. It also was really visual for me. So I contacted Francine, who I saw from her website, I was just doing my research and I saw that she's also an artist. So I contacted her and asked her if she would be interested in doing some illustrations for the piece. And that had not been done uh, on Joyland, certainly not on Joyland Vancouver. So it was kind of a new thing. And again, just so thankful for Brian at Joyland who uh, looked into how The website could support that. We had a bit of an older, our website just has been around for a long time. So there you have to figure out how this is going to work. Francine um, agreed and went back to work on the illustrations. And then we published it. Um, This sort of made me feel like it had a bit of a graphic novel feel to it as a result of this. So we chose to publish it um, in serialized form over four weeks. So every week there was a new episode of um, Complex 2675 Up!, and it was so, it was different. It was extra work and it was so worth it to get that up. Francine was great. I love the illustrations that she did. So it was different. And again, one of those examples where, um, or one of those times where as an editor, you think, well, this is great. Let's see what else. Like, like, let's see if we can, I don't want to make it say make it, I guess it was bigger. It's not making it better. It's an excellent story to begin with. But um, we just, we took a few extra steps to expand the project a little bit. And I think it was
0: so worth it that's just wonderful and thank you so much for telling us about that and for and for talking with us today about lip mag love and sharing your lip mag love for that piece in particular and just for writing in general thank you oh thanks so much rachel so that was my interview with carly baker she's an editor with joyland vancouver although currently on hiatus and she's also editing an upcoming issue of poetry is dead and some of the things that she said, I mean, so many amazing things. And like I I said in the interview, I also follow her on Twitter often for her, her wisdom on current topics and, and what's going on as she looks outward, as she said, um, more in, in the world in her writing. As she put it, you can only gaze at your navel for so long. If that's what you need to heal, great. But she's really looking forward to turning her gaze outward. And... I think some of the things we learned from her in terms of how she edits is she gravitates toward writers with a strong voice. So she says, it's it's my job to not mess with that and to point out moments when I'm genuinely confused about something and then ask questions. And I think so many writers appreciate that editorial approach where they're trying to help you succeed with what your vision is for your writing. And another thing I think that is important to point out is what she was talking about the importance of reading. So it seems like we all know we need to read to be the best writers we can be. But my experience, as Carly says, is that it sure is easy to get caught up pumping out the writing as much as possible and writing until you want to fall into bed. Or as she said in her case, watch some cartoons and go to sleep. But reading analytically is really beneficial for me. And she probably learned to be more brave because she respects the choices and risks other writers take. And I think as editors, that's probably one of the best blessings that, that we get from, from being able to read so many submissions because it does really inspire you and you're reading some of the freshest work, work from really raw, unpublished authors who are still exploring ideas in terms of voice and are really pushing boundaries and limits a lot of the time. So I, I really wholeheartedly endorse that statement around, around reading to become the best writer you can be. And then the last thing I'll comment on that we learned from the interview with Carly is around the resilience and power of community. And I think it's so amazing to see so many positive initiatives that she is involved in and and positive initiatives that have grown out of some of the dark times, the dark year that Kenlit has experienced. So... Thank you for listening, writers. This episode of Lit Mag Love, as always, is presented by Room Magazine, Canada's oldest feminist literary journal, and We Write, We Light. You can find out more about those two projects on websites, roommagazine.com and wewritewelight.com.